0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, with Pastor John King. Good morning,
1: everybody. Welcome to church. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord with you guys once again. Uh, Gosh, this uh, mild spring is something, isn't it? It's kind of mushy out there, but uh, it's good to see you guys here this morning. Nice full house. Can't ask for more than that, can we? Amen. Amen. So, let's uh, today we're going to continue in Philippians, of course, we're in chapter 2, we'll be covering verses 5 through 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Last week we looked at the conduct, or the, excuse me, the command, Paul was given a command to believers and to the church in Philippi to stand firm in unity, which is going to be marked by your conduct, of course. It's not just words to be spoken. And, I, and, and we said, you know, we're, we're behaving what we believe. We're, we're behaving like we truly believe what we read and what we claim the Bible says. And that is having the commitment to strive together. Now that sounds kind of like... Um, you know, works, doesn't it? Striving. But in this case it really does, in a lot of ways, apart from the Holy Spirit, to stay together as a church, it can be challenging at times. And so we are to have the commitment, you know, through all the ups and downs of a fellowship. And the reason we stand together is for the faith of the gospel, of course. It's not just some club where we gather and, you know, have great music and food and fellowship. No, we we stand for the faith of the gospel. And the reason we do that is because of the external pressures of the enemy. And I don't need to tell you guys what's the state of our culture is today, you're well aware of it. And so that's one main reason why Paul said, you guys need to stick together. Now in the the case of the Philippians, he was really uh, speaking to their their sense of loyalty because they were Roman, prior Roman citizens. But we also need to learn how to battle discouragement. And a lot of times that doesn't necessarily come from the outside, that comes from the inside, inside the fellowship. Because the enemy gets in there and tries to stir things up and create division among us. And so we need to learn how to be consoled or comforted in our salvation in Jesus. You know, it all points back to Jesus. We're going to let one another down on a regular basis. Uh, We've learned that. But Jesus will not. And He is going to give us our consolation our comfort. And we receive that comfort from Jesus, and then we spread it out among our our brothers and sisters, by encouraging one another. Learning how to love biblically, really is what it is. With humility, considering others better than yourself, and putting to the, to practice what we called last week, the cure for selfishness and conceit. The cure for selfishness and pride and conceit is considering others to be better than you. Looking out for the interests of others. Putting away your agenda for for the sake of someone else. Now, if you're anything like I am, and I suspect you are, you're you're human, right? (laughs) You probably have taken a look at yourself in light of that command from Paul. And you are being called to be humble. I'm being called to be humble and to recognize that I struggle with this idea. It's not an idea, it's a command. I struggle with putting the needs of others before my own needs. And I think you can relate to that. So today, Paul is going to help us by pointing to Jesus once again. You know, that's the cure, or the ultimate cure. Jesus is the perfect example of biblical love and humility. And Paul's going to remind us that in order for us to live this out, this love and humility and behave what we believe, we need the mind of Christ. And so today we're going to look at that. So let's look at our passage. He says, verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we thank You once again. Uh, We said it earlier, we're, we're grateful that You dwell among us. And Lord, as You bring Your Word to bear on our hearts, we ask that You would help us to put aside any barrier for the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts today and to speak to our hearts the truth that You have for us, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Go before us now. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So we start, as we said, with the mind of Christ. Paul is starting with the mind of Christ. He says, let this mind be in you. Now this word for mind really expresses the habit of thought. It's talking about your attitude. You know, attitude can be everything in life as we find out. But he says, let it be in you among yourselves. He's talking to the entire church. He's talking to all of us, even 2,000 years later. I like the English Standard Version. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because you might ask that question, you know, well, how how do I get the mind of Christ? Well, guess what? You already have it. It's already been done. When you repented of your sins and when you became a Christian, you received a new attitude, a new mind, causing you to see things in a new light. Do you remember how that was? Do you remember the old darkness of your sin, and the old lost condition where you were far away from Jesus, and now having come to the Lord, I mean, it may have been decades since you got saved. But do you remember how your mind changed? Do you remember how things were different? Paul explains what happened in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And later in the same book of Corinthians, he said or earlier on in verse 2.16, he says, he declares, we have the mind of Christ. So you have it. But what we need to do is now let it work. Let it be among us. Let it be active in us. It needs to be exercised because we're still free agents. We still need to cooperate with God and the plans He has for our lives. And so we are to let, or to have, or to adopt the mind of Christ in a sincere and Spirit-led fashion. So the ball is in your court. The ball is in my court. You're you're being coached by the Word of God today, or when you study the Word. And you're being... uh, encouraged by the teammates around you, okay? Those who are serving the Lord and walking with the Lord together in unity. But the ball is still in your court to have the mind of Christ. Now you might say, well, okay, what what mind? Well, let's back up to verses three and four of chapter two. This is the mind of Christ. Let nothing be done with selfish or through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. That's the mind of Christ. That's the mind of Christ, which you have in you, which you and I need to be able to exercise each and every day, all the time. You know, you can't argue the fact that we get opportunities every day to exercise the mind of Christ. You can't deny that. But how do you answer a declaration like that? You know, it's, it's certainly not so much in words as it is in deeds. Are you and I willing to make our mind be set on humility and lowliness each and every day? Remember last week we said in the Greek and Roman culture to have a lowly and humble mind was not acceptable in that culture. And so it, it goes in today's culture as well. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to be humble before the Lord. Our flesh rebels against that. Our society says, you don't have to do that. It's all about you. Outlook determines outcome, said one writer. And so the question is, are you and I willing to get down where the needs really are? Are you willing to be part of the solution? You see, oftentimes as believers, we become just simply part of the problem, quite frankly, don't we? Are we willing to be part of the solution in the church and in the world we live in. Remember that Paul is addressing the need for unity, of course. And later on, we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4, he's actually going to name names about this lack of unity and some of the things that are going on in that church. He will answer concerns about false teachers from the outside and disagreements from within. You might say, well, that's going to be costly. You bet it is. You bet it's going to be costly. But what a glorious privilege being offered to possess the mind of Christ. Would you want something else? Do you like your own mind? Are you satisfied with that? Your own reason? You know, that's another flaw that we can have as human beings to, you know, kind of go through life with our own reason. where we're, we're void of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so now at this point in our passage today, Paul is going to hone in. He's going to look straight into who Jesus is. And he's going to explain the amazing attributes of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in a famous verse, who He is. Well, he's, of course, the quick answer is, who is Jesus? Well, one aspect is He's fully God. And another aspect is He's fully man, all at the same time. And that will always get us to stop and take a breath in our minds going, okay, I've got to get my mind wrapped around that. And so let's look at God's word here. He says, first, Jesus divine nature because Jesus is fully God. Look at verse six. He said, who being in the form of God. In other words, NIV says being in the very nature, God, or though he was God. That word being, uh, parcho to be in existence both prior to and after the circumstances we're about to mention. He's God, and He always was God, and He always will be God. But it says here, being in the form of God. Now that word form is the Greek word morphe. It's where we get our English version of morph, to be morphed. And it's going to be used three times and it only ever in the New Testament, only ever refers to Jesus. Now the English word morph means to change the form of a, or character of something. For example, using the new software, we morphed a picture of a dog into a picture of a cat. That is not how the word is used to describe Jesus. What it refers to is the fact that Jesus was pre-existent. And it's talking about his divine characteristics things which always were and always will be. And I'll say it again, Jesus was, He is, and always will be God. How do we know? Well, finish the the sentence, Pastor John. It says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now Paul declares that Jesus is equal to God, the Father and the Holy Spirit. An equal state or condition. Jesus said it himself uh, several times. I don't have a slide, but one of the shortest verses where Jesus describes his relationship, his equality with God. He said in John 10, 30, I and my father are one. Jesus is God. And so he says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Well, what is that robbery, that harpogamos? That means to seize or plunder. He didn't, you know, it wasn't like he snatched it what he had, his, his attributes, and said, it's mine, all mine, and I'm not giving it up. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't like a prize that he was going to hold on to. Aren't you glad that he humbled himself and became a man, even though he's God? John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That refers to Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, again, speaking of His brightness, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. That's His God, godly attributes. And upholding all things by the word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus is God. Next, we look at His human nature. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is God and Jesus is fully man. Look at verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. No reputation. This is for you note takers, for those Bible students here, that's that word kino, it's where we get the word kenosis, this emptying of himself. Now if you want to read about that have at it. It's all there for you in the theological handbooks. But it's an amazing thing. But it means to make empty. Now pay close attention. Jesus Christ did not empty himself of his Godhood. You would think, well, you know, if he's going to become a man, he can't still be God. Not in the case of Jesus. He didn't diminish that. He didn't, well, he did diminish it, but he didn't hide it. He didn't empty it from himself. He could not, and he did not, cease to be what he essentially and eternally already was. So what did Jesus do? Kenosis, or keno'o, he freely self-emptied himself, not by subtracting who he is. He self-emptied himself, but through humility he added human nature. And in doing so, he veiled his divine attributes and gave up the right to use them in situations where he would have been justified. Right after being betrayed by Judas with a kiss, the Jews laid hands on Jesus to arrest him. You recall that Peter went wild with his sword and he cut off the ear of the, priest, the high, uh, high priest's servant, Malchus. And Jesus told him, he said, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But he also said this right after that in Matthew twenty six fifty three. He said, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? You see, he's God. He's fully God. And he had the complete power to do that. Think about it on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he revealed himself to the apostles, three of them, and he revealed his glory and his shining, bright, shining glory, who he truly was, outside the veil, if you will. He gave him a glimpse. So he was always God. He remains God. Even when he was in the flesh, he was God. But he was also man. In response to those who have and will continue to try and destroy the deity of Christ. You know, that's been going on for hundreds of years. Since the very beginning of the church age, we had the Gnostics, and then on through the centuries, and even to this present day, there are those who want to destroy the deity of Christ. And they go through great lengths to do so. And so why do we have to continue to bring it up? because we are to defend the faith, the truth of God's Word. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, remember, God the Son is by nature God. He's fully and externally, or excuse me, eternally divine. And the deity cannot change. If He could change, He wouldn't truly be God. Saying that the Son of God voluntarily emptied Himself of His deity is essentially saying He wasn't truly God. Remember, he didn't empty himself of his deity. Others try to soften this by saying he emptied himself of his attributes of deity. But it's the same thing. The attributes of God are what distinguish God as God. If Christ lost even one attribute of, in the incarnation, he never was God to begin with. And how does that apply today? Well, you go to college campuses. You go out into the, into the society. And, you'll t- and they will tell you, very smart people will tell you, that Jesus is not God. And they will even question the fact that, you know, the Bible is not even true. Because they have to destroy the fact that He's God, so that you can, they can wreck your faith. And they're out to do that. Now, not not you guys. I mean, you guys love Jesus. You have a relationship with Him. But keep in mind, you're going to run into people that have a lot of questions about what's going on, because they have a lot of choices of philosophy and different religions. And so we need to know why we believe what we believe. Amen. All right, enough of that. Self-humiliation. He took on the form of a bondservant. Now, you know, we've established the fact that he's fully God and he's fully man. But what did he do? He self-humiliated. It says he came in the likeness of men. He was born into the likeness of men. And this is what we call the incarnation. incarnation. Jesus left his heavenly throne that had been his for all of eternity past and entered the body of the Virgin Mary as an unborn baby. God took the body of flesh and blood. That's what God did. So why, as, we, as I said, why do we have to continue to make the point? Because part of our job as Christians is to defend the faith. And because false teachers, and I'll give you an example, you might be familiar with the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they deny that Jesus is God the Son. And if you don't think it's true, you just ask them when they come to your doorstep. They'll tell you. You can say, I I believe, they'll they'll say, oh yeah, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. And you can say, what do you believe He is God the Son? And they'll say, well, no, we don't believe that. A reporter was interviewing a successful job counselor who had placed hundreds of workers in their vocations quite happily. When asked the secret of his success, the man replied, well, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. Most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough, but it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser man will use privileges to promote himself. Jesus used his heavenly privileges for the sake of others, for our sake, wrote Warren Wiersbe. Mark 10:45. it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God the Son came. You know, we each have people in our lives who need attention. All of us. Sometimes that need happens when we're busy with our daily routine. Now we have these phones now, we can silence them. (laughs) You know, we can answer that text a little later. We don't want to be slaves to the phone, but we need to be aware when somebody needs to spend time, needs to talk to us. And I think it's too easy to shut people off nowadays. But this interruption of our daily routine, when you can't escape it, somebody needs to talk to you. And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And, And so it works both ways. It causes a struggle with our selfish tendencies, doesn't it? And what does it do? It, t- it tends to make us stressed out. You know how people are always talking about we're stressful, stressed out. But when we decide to let the mind of Christ be in us, we are relieved of that stress and made willing to serve instead of always wanting to be served. If you've ever spent a, a full day in ministry, some of us did uh, last Sunday, spent a full day in ministry essentially. And you were tired that night. I know you were. We went over to EMS. I'm not trying to boast on anybody, but you spent a full day in ministry and you were tired. And I, I'll I'll bet you you thought that's the best tired you've had in a long time. Why? Because you were putting other others' needs. You were out of your comfort zone. And so we need the opportunities to exercise that. And God gives them to us plenty of times. Now, finally, we look at what He did. You see, Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. Paul has shown us what many scholars think or consider to be the three downward movements or steps in Christ's self-humiliation. First, he left his heavenly abode with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He left heaven. Second, instead of clinging to his equality with God, excuse me, second, he came further down the steps to become incarnate. He became, took on human form in the likeness of men and as a servant. You know, he didn't come down, we're going to see, he didn't come down, you know, dressed in royal robes. Next, we see Christ's self-humiliation, and it's going to reach its lowest point on the cross. So he was coming down, down, down to us. Look at verse 8. It says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There he was. He was the baby in the manger. That's what we see. Every, you know, every Christmas we celebrate Jesus' arrival. The baby in the manger. He was the young boy in the temple. He was the carpenter's son. And you know, when you look at that society, you realize he wasn't working with wood. He worked with stone. He had hands that were rough and strong. And all the many stories of the gospels and his earthly ministry that we see. And he says he was found in appearance or in fashion. You know how it strikes your senses when you see him. It's not what you think. It wasn't, like I said, he didn't come down in royal robes saying, I've arrived, God's here now. No. His appearance was as a man. They, then when they saw him, now his glory was veiled. We talked about that. His glory was now veiled. And he didn't have a striking appearance. He was rather ordinary looking. Now, the Bible does never, never gives a very detailed description of Jesus and what he looks like. But Isaiah 53, 2, I don't think we have a slide for that. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And talking about Jesus, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't going to make it as a Hollywood actor, uh, a model, a male model. that wasn't going to happen. But he became obedient to the point of death. Obedient to who? The Father. And he humbled himself. And he suffered even death of the cross. Now, it's, it's one thing to die. We all die. Some die martyrs death. Some people are killed. But Jesus died on the cross. stauros or stauros It's a pole or a cross that stood upright to perform capital punishment. Now on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, one of His prayers to the Father, one of these are one of the many prayers that He had for, you know, the apostles, for future Christians. And He had a prayer to the Father And it reflected the position and power that Jesus had in heaven. And that he would see in glory once he was raised from the grave. And he says, and now, O Father, John 17, 5. He says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, he always was in existence. God always existed. He's the uncreated one. And now Jesus is just, you know, describing that beautiful relationship. Tommy Heigel wrote this, he said, This prayer of Jesus gives us a glimpse of His glory in heaven. From the glory of heaven, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. In the time of Christ, being put to death on the cross was the most contemptible thing that could happen to a person. The Romans only crucified the most notorious criminals. It was the worst torture imaginable because such sentenced prisoners were nailed to a cross and left to die a slow, agonizing death, which could take several days. There was nothing lower than being a crucified criminal. So he came down, down, down to be with us to the point of death. How about you and I? Maybe that's sobering for us. You know, we, look, do we ride around on a high horse sometimes? Unfortunately, yes. Is it most of the time? I hope not. You know, we often give thanks for the Lord Jesus coming down from heaven. But when we reflect on the things we've read so far today, how we took our shame and how we would not have to experience the pain and torment of eternal suffering and separation from God. He did that for us. So to have the mind or the attitude of Jesus, you must be willing to sacrifice for others. Now, fortunately, God knows precisely what it is we can and cannot handle. And oftentimes, you guys have said it yourself, how are we so blessed to live in a country that's free, where we get to practice our Christianity freely and openly, compared to the apostles who were persecuted and gave their lives, and compared to all the thousands of people in other countries right now, who are persecuted for their faith. And that's just God's sovereignty, why we were born at a time like this, why we were born in such a wonderful country, privileged place, if you will. I know that word can be a trigger. But to have the mind or attitude of Jesus, Paul would say, and it applies to us, Romans 12:1, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Have you ever said, you know, that's the least thing I can do? Maybe, maybe you got a big long list of to-dos and you say, well, you know, at least I can do this one thing today. So presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, what does that look like? Well, we do it with our minds to be attentive to others' needs, to give an ear, not talking over them. We do it with our ears. Again, listening, our minds and ears, listening to others with compassion. With our mouths speaking life and truth and love. You see, as we go through this, we realize if that's the way, we got a lot of work to do. The Lord has a lot of work to do. How about hands that bring a tender touch to bring comfort to others? How about feet bringing a message to someone, letting them know that they have a friend, letting them know that Jesus loves them? How about your talents and your abilities and your spiritual gifts? When you and I evaluate how we use the things, our bodies and the things that He's given us, we realize and we should be humbled that we aren't always that way. And we need a lot, we have a long way to go. But here's the good news we see at the end. It wasn't just a miserable ending and a martyr's death for Jesus. Look at his reward. He is now highly exalted. And for that, you need to give thanks because you're riding with him. (laughs) You're going to go where he goes. The overwhelming majority of people and things, you know this, that live uh, presently on earth, live under the constant effects of gravity. What goes up must come down. Now we know that there are exceptions in the aerospace industry. But in general, the law of gravity applies to everyone. In the spiritual reality of Christian life, we find another law, a spiritual law in effect. The way up is down and serving others. And that's what Jesus did. reflecting on our need to be submissive to one another and clothed in humility. The apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5, 6. He says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And so we read in our final passage for today in verses 9 through 11, we see that we see the reason, the source, and the supremacy of Jesus' exaltation. It says in verse 9, therefore God has also highly exalted Him. This is, you know, if you want to put a, a mega, if you want to add uh, a, a descriptor to that, it was very powerful, was highly exalted. Why? Because on, on the account of what Jesus did, for the reason. He was obedient to the Father and He, he, he submitted Himself to the will of the Father. So God's exalted him. And notice the source is God. It's not people. Our source of exaltation is God himself. And he's highly exalted him to the highest rank and power. He's raised to the supreme majesty. God elevated him to the place of highest honor, in one Bible translation, and gave him a name above every name. The supremacy. So you don't, it doesn't, in other words, in a simple sentence, it doesn't get any higher than that. Look what it says, the result of Jesus's exaltation in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee should bow. We read as Isaiah 45:23 this morning, prophesied of that. He says that to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Every knee, yes, every knee of those in heaven, of those on the earth and those under the earth. That covers the entire created place for those who worship the Lord. Humans and angels and demons and devils. When Jesus comes back, now here's the thing, Jesus is coming back. Okay, he's coming back. He's... His second, not only was he, you know, did he die, not only all the things we talked about, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, those of us who know him, if you're alive or wherever you are, it doesn't matter where you are in the time continuance, if you will, those of us who know him as Savior will bow in love, adoration, and worship. Those who have rejected him as Savior and Lord will bow in fear and submission. Not only will everyone bow and, and, and before the Lord, but everyone will confess out loud with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the result. It doesn't mean that everyone will be saved, though. But each and every human being will ultimately acknowledge with their own mouth who Jesus is. Lord of all. And notice it says, to the glory of God, the Father. You know, the the Trinity, it all, God is, you know, three in one. It all shares, they all share together for their purpose. Now, when Jesus stood trial before Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas, you may remember, asked Jesus if, if, if he was the Christ, the Messiah. The son of the blessed is how he said it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Which means Messiah. And Jesus answered in Mark 14, 62. He said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the reply from Caiaphas. And if he could eat his words, I guarantee you he would. He said, this says, then the high priest, this was when Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have to, uh, of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some people began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, they beat him, and they began to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Think of the words that Caiaphas will speak on Jesus' return. So as we close today, I have really two questions for each and every one of us. Two questions. First of all, when... Are you going to bend your knee to the honor of the name of Jesus? When will you bend your knee? When will you bow before the Lord? And it doesn't necessarily mean physically, but in your heart. When will you do that? Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, you don't have to wait. You can do it now. But know this, you will do it when He returns. Whatever your choice is, you will do it. My second question is, when are you going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? You can do that now as well. Romans ten nineteen says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead You will be saved. When are you going to confess Jesus Christ? Either now, or you will do it when He returns. Amen. Father, we thank You for our time together today. Lord, I would just simply ask that Your words would sink into our heart and mind. The truth of who You are. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who hasn't bent their knee or bowed before the Lord or submitted themselves to Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior Lord that you would move in their hearts even now touch them as only the Holy Spirit of God can I pray for anyone in this room who has not acknowledged Jesus Christ with their mouth as Lord and Savior I pray that you would work in a mighty way, in a powerful way to put the words on their lips, not because of my speaking, but because God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to them right at this moment. We ask, Lord, that you would simply once again do your work. We thank you again that you do dwell among us. We give you praise and honor for that. And we pray this all now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship. If anybody needs prayer after the worship time, the song time, I'll be available in the back. Pastor John and Miss Heidi will will be here as well. If anybody would like prayer or has any questions for us, we're available for you.
0: Messiah Name above all names, Blessed Redeemer in the rescue for sin. Messiah Lord of all His body the bread His blood the wine Broken and poured out All for love The whole tremble and the veil was torn love so amazing love so amazing Jesus Messiah name above all for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. This Messiah Name above all names, Blessed Redeemer in were the rescue for sinners like me from heaven Jesus Messiah Lord of all Jesus Messiah Lord sing each other out with a blessing. I'll start first. I'm going to repeat it and you come in. The Lord bless and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious and give you peace. Sing with me the lord blessing keep you may his face shine upon you and be gracious and give you peace god bless you please take advantage of any prayer that you need meet the pastors take advantage of that god bless thank you for joining us today for calvary chapel elizabeth city's online sermon series Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.